My sister is 27, so understands social media in ways that I don't. Called me and went, did you know that you guys are violent? And I was like, what does that actually mean? <laughs> Hello and welcome to this episode of On Assignment, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of award-winning reporting here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes program here at the Journalism School. And with me today, as always, is my colleague and sidekick, Lisa R. Cohen, <laughs> who runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. What's going on? Well, funny you should ask, we're in the middle of our submission season for the 2020 DuPont Columbia Awards. Yes, we are. We open May 1st, and we our deadline is July 1. So if you think that you have done outstanding audio or video reporting between, this is important, between July 1 of 2018 and June 30th of this year, 2019, you're eligible to submit. So get to it. Now is your chance to enter for the DuPont Silver Baton. DuPont.org. Go there and you'll have everything you need. Great. So today we're trying something a little different, right? That's right. We are joined by one of our journalism students this year, Sarah Mawad, and she's with us because she is an integral part of today's episode. How are you today, Sarah? I'm great. Thank you, Lisa. We're going to hear from one of our 2019 DuPont Columbia Award winners who we were surprised to find out was in the building, happily surprised. Her name is Nima Elbagar, and she is the senior international correspondent for CNN. She won a DuPont back in January for her reporting of human rights abuses. It was stunning reporting, and the centerpiece of the work was uh, this treacherous story in which she and her producer actually snuck into a Libyan slave auction where they witnessed and then recorded for the world to see that humans were being sold. Yeah, it was amazing. So to find out that she was in the building, we were thrilled beyond belief. We had assumed that she would be off in some far off land, but in fact, she was inside Pulitzer Hall. She was here to speak with students uh, because Sarah actually smartly invited her to come here. Um, so tell us how that happened. Well, I was a volunteer at this year's DuPont Awards back in January. And at the end of the ceremony, we were allowed to mingle with some of the uh, recipients of the award. And I knew I had to meet Nima. I have so much respect for the kind of investigative work that she does. And we exchanged emails. And she said she was coming back in April to receive an award. And um, just I annoyed the hell out of her and emailed her a million times. That was great planning and very generous of you and of her for yeah. giving her time. Just so being annoying pays off. It is a huge honor to have Naama Al-Baghir with us today. Thank you. Um, and we wanted to play a little a clip of a little bit of Nama's recent reporting uh, on the slave auction in Libya. We're ushered into one of two auctions happening on this same night. Crouched at the back of the yard, a floodlight obscuring much of the scene. One by one, men are brought out as the bidding begins. 400. 500. 550. Thank you. 
so that was clearly an incredible and very, very difficult story. And so if you could tell us a little bit about the access for that story and you know, how you keep yourself and your sources and your team safe when you're reporting in these situations. Well, I think the key starting point for all of this is always the relationships, whether it's the relationships amidst the team, the relationships that you build with the contacts. She Raja, who produced that piece, she already had an extraordinary network of contacts in Libya and across the Middle East. So for example, we had an extraordinary contact of Raja's and because Libyans, similar to us in Sudan, are, come in lots of different shades, we both were able to just fit in quite easily with his family and convincing CNN that this was the right choice, that this was the safest choice. So how do you have, when, you, when you're someone like CNN, we keep our people safe because we pay and we have insurance and we have great security experts, and then convincing our bosses to trust that actually I know more about this culture and this context than the white former Marine, who is the person who should be advising you on how you deal with a frontline situation in Iraq, or how you deal with a, a regular, uh, army clash situation in Libya. Um, so there was a lot of being heard to CNN's credit and also demanding that we be heard and trying to build on the credibility that Raja had had from covering ISIS for so many years as our senior Middle East producer and a lot of the work that I had been doing and also just getting the buy-in mm -hmm. of if there is a story that is worth the risk if there is something that we as CNN should be leveraging our platform for, it is this story. And I just, I think I'd kind of fallen into some kind of coma for about 12 hours after we finished the edit and it went out. And I just kind of remember thinking, we're just gonna like let this story go. I think it's gonna find an audience. And my sister is 27, so understands social media in ways that I don't. Um, called me and went, did you know that you guys are viral? And I was like, what does that actually mean? <laughs> and she's like, well, there are different levels of viral. There is viral for a news story, and there's, you know, Selena Gomez viral. There is, you know, Oscar night viral. And I was like, and where are we there? And she's like, well, it's only 10 o'clock in the morning, and I think you might be approaching Selena Gomez viral. <laughs> and I was like, okay. You mentioned being heard, but also demanding that you be heard. And, you know, as, as a woman journalist, as a black journalist, as an Arab journalist, as someone who's focusing on international stories when sometimes mm. Americans just want to talk about Donald Trump, mm. all of these things that you're kind of up against, um, or all of these things that make up, you know, who you are, how have you navigated that and made sure that your voice is heard and that you're able to convince your editors mm. or higher ups that you know, that that's, that that's to your credit, that, that mm. being so close to the story is not something that is gonna discredit you. Like, on the contrary, it'll help you produce a stronger story. I think, for me, and, and definitely for my other friends who I've spoken to about this, the first battle is almost with yourself, because you often are running away from what makes you different. And you know, and whether that's, being a woman of color, whether that's being a practicing Muslim, whether that's being an Arabic speaker, you know, I think often you want to, you, you want to prove yourself on somebody else's terms. People like me were fixers. People like me 10 years ago didn't end up in front of the camera. 
So when I started transitioning, that became the second battle is I want to win on your terms. I want to be standing in front of number 10 Downing Street in a smart coat talking about whatever you know, is going on, uh, not Brexit at the moment, but whatever you know, is going on inside that. I felt that it was very important to show that I could tell those stories because too often it's a one-way street. There is a sense that they can tell our stories, and I say our as somebody who's of a, a, you know, a, an African and Arab background, somebody who is often a minority in the newsroom, there's always this sense that they can tell our stories, but it, it doesn't go the other way. You can take a chance on someone in the newsroom who doesn't speak the local language and presume that they are just a good enough journalist to get airlifted into Tripoli, but it very rarely works the other way. And so I needed to get out of my own way I, don't, I shouldn't want to tell the stories that everybody else is telling. And I think Libya was the kind of the ultimate realization of that. Because there are stories that you, that are almost impossible to get to without diversity in the newsroom. It was easier for Raja and I. It was easier for us to disappear. It was easier to have Arabic speakers. It took the temperature down a lot for it to be women. In, in such a chauvinistic cultural context as Libya. So the thing to say is that there was no audience mic, and you very thoughtfully let the audience ask most of the questions. Mm -hmm. So for the podcast to work, we've asked you to come in and recap what the questions were for us. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's get to it. Let's do it. This question was related to times in Nima's career where she felt like she was genuinely interested in a story, but it's outside of her own personal or cultural or religious context. And was she ever worried that her identity, maybe as a person of color or somebody who is outside of that context, made it more difficult for her to cover that kind of story? Um, no, because I think often being the complete flip side of, of that cultural context is incredibly helpful. So the day after the Brexit vote, I, the Muslim migrant woman, got sent to interview Nigel Farage at UKIP headquarters. <laughs> it, it was delightful. And I was so pregnant and so pissed off. I get a call after done it, doing the all night shift um, and just like, oh, Brexit, it's happening. And then I get a call going, well, you need to go interview Nigel Farage. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, you need to get up. And I honestly, I had the worst pregnancy in God's eyes. It was just nine months of nausea. I don't, like, just don't recommend it. So I walked in and, um, and was kind of face to face with the, the press guy. And so first of all, you could see his face. He was like, they sent the black girl. Like, that was written all over his face. And, 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 you know, and all of the black girl, you know, like all six foot one of the black girl <laughs> was standing in front of him. And I just became so my mother's daughter in that moment. I was so polite. I was like, I understand congratulations are in order. And I kind of swept past him. And then again, Nigel Farage's face was a picture. Again, it just was like, oh, they sent the black girl. I promise I'm not a racist. Um, and, and, and it was, you know, I just, in that moment, it was the best thing they could have done because, you know, all of the white correspondents who walked into that room walked in understandably with the baggage of being like, you are, I'm gonna hold your feet to the fire. I didn't have to do that because from the viewer's perspective, everything about me was holding this man to account. And so it is 
less pressure on me in that moment. If there is a little tiny bit of privilege, it is that you are so visually representative to the viewer of something that is the absolute abhorrence of everything that these people represent, that even just the willingness of put you, to put yourself in the same frame with these people, I think is very visually useful. This was a follow-up on the last question, and the student asked, how do you think this can influence the person that you're talking to? Oh, that's interesting. In different ways, actually. I'm not sure that there is one across-the-board way. Um, I think being a black woman versus being a black man uh, unfortunately makes a huge difference. So I think there is less kind of the, the, the testosterone off, and usually it's men on the other side of that. Um, uh, and I think it's very difficult not to bring that into a room, unfortunately. Um, it ranges between defensiveness, uh, misrepresentation, flirtation is a weird one that you also get as a black woman in these. I mean, um, uh, my, a very good friend of mine uh, is our Moscow correspondent, Fred Plankin, who's German, and he and I, for some reason, have the exact similar experience. Racists love us. They fall out, like Fred, for obvious reasons, he's like six foot five, the German Aryan ideal, but I don't know why me. But for some reason, it just kind of, I'm not here to argue with you because you're not in my living room. I'm here to interrogate the arguments that you are putting out into the world. And I think it's very important to engage these people in that way, because while the acts that we're seeing as a result of the ideology are extreme, the ideology is mainstream. And so I don't think any journalist can afford to sit out this conversation or to sit out these stories, whether they're white or black or you know, of any ethnic minority or any distinction. This question came from a student who Similarly to Nima, was a black journalist, uh, a British journalist who studied politics in undergrad and was asking for general advice for going into international political reporting, what kind of advice Nima would have for a student like her. Um, so I think first and foremost is uh, get some experience on the ground, anything and everything, any NGOs that need communications interns, just get out there. So I literally, I was at Channel 4 News and I just got tired of constantly being told, well, he's an authority on X. So I was like, do you know what? I'm gonna work my way down this list. And I literally was like, okay, I'm gonna go to the Congo. I went to Afghanistan. I went to Somalia. And, and, and it doesn't have to be go there to report, but just get a, get a, just get a foot on the ground so that you can say, well, I was there, actually, and let me tell you about Kanu in northern Nigeria. Or I have a contact who's on the ground there, and just find somewhere where you can have a soft landing, wherever it is, and then build a point of authority, build yourself a contacts book. Don't do it the other way around. Too many people go into newsrooms, and then they're reliant on, on the editors in the newsroom to send them out. If somebody will cover your room and board, work for free, but just get out there. Nothing beats when a story breaks being able to say, I actually know exactly what that looks like on the ground. The next question related to when Nima first started pitching early on in her career without much experience in a newsroom. 
Um, how did she convince people that she had the knowledge base or expertise? I think the key trait of any journalist is that they are incredibly annoying and they don't, they don't let things go and, 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 don't, and be really thick-skinned about it. Like, I literally know that our senior news editors are seeing the emails pop up and, and it is nothing personal and it isn't even a rudeness. Like, they literally are thinking, oh, and then it's gone, you know, the inbox is filled up. But there will be that one day when that story breaks and they need you. And they'll suddenly go, I just, I think there was someone in here who contacted us from that place. Um, and also don't be afraid to just come and meet people. If you're about to go somewhere before you go to that place, you know, before you relocate to wherever it is you, you want to start freelancing from, do the rounds. And so that you can be able to say, oh, well, I remember when I saw you, you mentioned that you were interested in this. What are the stories that you're interested? And also just don't, I, I think that one of the, the difficulties often is that we presume that everybody else knows more than us. So I remember in the Channel 4 News editorial meetings every morning, there was one person who every morning would be like, well, so I think the key issue today is, and I would just sit there going, oh my God, how does he know everything about everything? And then one morning I remember walking past, I got a, foot, a, a different stop at the tube and I was just gonna walk down and then for some reason the New York Times caught my eye. And I sat in the editorial and I was like, that bastard is reading the New York Times every morning and just regurgitating it <laughs> wholesale. Whereas I was thinking, unless I have 18 different high-level sources, I can't, you know, who does he know in every single <laughs> cabinet, in every country? So I don't think you should be afraid to analyze, to kind of take the different news sources and extrapolate and have your perspective on them, because your perspective is valuable. This question came from a DuPont fellow who is in the documentary concentration. Our own Sarah Jenks, who often helps produce this podcast. Yes. And she was speaking about a documentary that she was producing in Haiti, where she was filming with a woman who was very vulnerable and who lived in dire poverty. And when she came in with a film crew, she felt that she made the subject a target in her community because people were assuming that she was getting paid by the film crew. Obviously, in journalism, you're not supposed to ever pay your sources. So Sarah asked, when you disrupt someone's life who's very vulnerable and you make them a target because of your reporting, how do you ethically navigate that dilemma? It's a great question. How you seek to find ways to make sure that you don't put people in danger or you don't leave harm in your wake depends on the, on the situation you're in. So I remember when we were covering the famine in Somalia and it was my first big story with a CNN domestic crew and Anderson Cooper came in with his crew and we were in the children's hospital and I looked over and there was this little bundle and we realized that the, the parents couldn't afford to bury their child and that little bundle was the baby. And Anderson came up to me and said to me, after the interview was done, I want you to give them the money to bury the child. And then later when the story aired, he was very public about the fact that they had given, knowing that in Mogadishu that the local community would not have known who she was, that it wasn't like CNN was in every home. I think transparency is key and I think every journalist makes those decisions. I think we're all in agreement that you cannot, you cannot give money for, in exchange for an interview. So I tend to find 
after, so it's not directly me. Uh, I, every year as a practicing Muslim, have a certain amount of, of charity that I'm supposed to give. And I will tend to find the, the local community organization and give them the money and they will then, you know, so it's through a third party so that the, the people don't know that they have received this from me so that then it, do, it doesn't become public knowledge that if you give a journalist an interview that there's money afterwards. And I don't think those ethical rules are meant to be rigidly enforced in situations where you're dealing with people who are desperate. And I think sometimes we, are, we allow our, you know, some kind of rarefied moral code to stop us being human. Yeah, this was a heavy one. This came from a student asking about covering these issues in high-risk areas and in conflict zones. They asked Nima if she had struggled with PTSD or carry any trauma after covering these types of stories, and if so, how she deals with it. I think the best piece of advice that I was given was to differentiate between what is healthy trauma and, and, and is good and, uh, and proves that you are still able to feel and, and still healthy and able to continue doing this job and what is unhealthy trauma. And I think we tend to, we tend to misunderstand. It is perfectly healthy in the aftermath of coming back from covering something horrible to feel crappy and it is perfectly healthy to cry and it is perfectly healthy to vent. What is happening months afterwards, I think is, is what is of concern. And being responsible for each other, I think is also very important to say, I don't think you're okay. But it, it's a tough one. I mean, I personally, I had um, such a kind of abnormal upbringing. My dad was a dissident, he was in jail, he was in exile, then we were back in Sudan, then he was in exile. Then, you know, I just, I've never had normal. So I don't necessarily have something to, um, some, it, is, it isn't traumatic for me. I actually, being completely honest, uh, the most traumatic thing I went through was having a child. Honestly, <laughs> um, genuinely, um, first of all, I was terrified that I would become one of those mums that had no interest in the outside world. The first time I was bored by my child, I was like, yes, <laughs> like, I will, I will return to journalism, be fine. Um, I actually, you know, I talked to so many people about how is this possible that the thing that has thrown me the most is this thing that you know millions of you know hundreds of millions of women have done since the world began how is this the thing that has messed with my head and i so and i remember i actually went and spoke to somebody and the doctor was like you you have a certain amount of resilience built in and you can't ever predict when that coping mechanism gives out on you and so you can be somebody who is able to go to mass grave after mass grave. And actually, to be fair, I, you know, my first big story was Darfur. And I remember the first time I ever saw a mass grave, I was 24 years old, and we had arrived just after the Sudanese forces had left, probably like five or six hours prior to that. For some reason, they had clearly had to clean up quite quickly. And so, you know, there were arms sticking out of this mass grave. And that wasn't the thing that traumatized me. The thing that traumatized me was going to a village, being the first people to go into that village, 
after the, the, the rapes had happened and finding the, the tribal leader in the village had written all the names of the girls in the village that had been raped on these scraps of paper and they just handed them to us because they said, you know, we, we think that you are going to get us justice. I was 24, I was a kid. I wasn't going to get anyone justice. Nobody was going to get these girls justice. You know, I found that more traumatic because that went to the core of why I became a journalist. I genuinely believe that there are things that we as a civilized world do not tolerate and will not allow to tolerate. And so therefore that if you do your job and you get those things out into the world, that automatically these things stop. But of course they don't. And so I think that for me is more traumatic than being in a bunker under fire. Like I think you have to be very careful not to presume what your boundaries are and what it is that is going to traumatize you and allow yourself to feel your own way through it. Weren't you working on the Libya story while you were on maternity leave? Oh gosh, yes, yes. <laughs> That's how desperate I was to get off maternity leave. No. This was a great question because it was a predominantly female audience. So I think we all appreciated this question. As the journalism school is predominantly female. <laughs> and the student asked, how has being a mother changed, if at all, um, Nima's experience being a foreign correspondent? Oh, okay, that's a very good question. Because I think, uh, I think being a parent is something that really isn't talked about enough. I think we don't have enough conversations about how being a father changes it because I have a lot of friends who would like to make different choices. So my husband, for instance, you know, was in Baghdad and he was in Afghanistan. He's not a journalist, but through his job, he, and when we had our son, he made a decision that he didn't want to do a, you know, a job that would take him away for six weeks out of every two months. And there, and there were ramifications to that for him career-wise. Weirdly, at CNN, between me being pregnant and the person who had been pregnant before me, it was literally 17 years. It was Christiane Amanpour had had Darius, and then I had Ali, like as a frontline female correspondent, which tells you everything. And so uh, Christiane was wonderful. She was everything you would want her to be. Um, she hosted my baby shower. She gave me, she gave me what to expect when you're expecting. Um, <laughs> Um, and also told me a lot of things that, that were going to be true for me um, because they were true for her and they weren't. I mean, she, for example, made very different choices and she would be the first person to say that after she had Darius because she felt very strongly that it was a very visceral thing for her, that the thought of leaving Darius without a mother was a very visceral thing. And I may be broken in some way, but I didn't feel that. <laughs> I genuinely, I was like, well, he's fine, he's fine. <laughs> My husband is very responsible. My mother is amazing, he'll be fine. And, and Christiane was 100% about it. She was like, you trust me. I, but, but at the same time, I think she was right about how difficult it was to go back into the field. So I came back from maternity leave and two weeks later I was in Iraq. And I wanted to die. I genuinely had not prepared myself. I mean, just even the thought of having been with this little person for eight and a half months, almost every day, and then suddenly you're bereft. Like I literally felt like 
I, the only thing that came close to it was when people describe uh, amputations and kind of phantom pain. And I was with, in Iraq, I was with our most hardcore um, frontline cameraman who is a legend in his own right. And even he was like, and he is not like emotionally literate. And even he was like, <laughs> I love that phrase. Even he was like, love. <laughs> so you, do, you never know what is the thing that is going to kind of unhinge you and then but what I think concerns me and this is something that I have been very vocal about with our management is we shouldn't have to rely as parents returning to the workplace on the goodwill of our colleagues nor should it be more emotional labor for the women that share the newsrooms with us because it's they are the ones who are, you know, emotionally literate enough to see it coming and they are the ones who step in and, and they are the ones who cover for you. But if you have 17 years between women doing this, then of course you have no institutional understanding of what okay is. This was towards the end of the talk. The audience was very moved by Nima's honesty and candidness. And a Lebanese student thanked Nima for being so honest and said, it's the first time at the J School that I feel like I can relate so much to a woman journalist, a journalist of color and a journalist that's Arab. So thank you for saying all that you said. And did you feel the same way? Absolutely. I definitely did. I think Nima was very forthcoming. She she really didn't hold back, you know. She spoke about the struggles, the very real struggles of of being a journalist of color. She spoke about motherhood in a very real way. And I think I think especially, you know, the the women in the audience really respected and appreciated that and it was something we needed to hear. Well, again, thank you so much for making this happen. I couldn't have done it without you, yes. literally. <laughs> thank you. It was it was so much fun, and I'm really glad it worked out. Before we wrap up, let me give you just one more reminder not to miss out on submitting your best reporting for the 2020 DuPont Columbia Awards by going to dupont.org for more information. You'll find all the contact info that you need, and we, of course, are always happy to answer your questions. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. Our producer is J-School grad Sarah Wyman with the support, always, of our lovely and talented prizes coordinator, Lauren Miragildo Santos. Our sound engineer today was A.J. Mangone, and our music is by Dylan Nowak. See you next time. <laughs>